Mark, some of you men may want to try that tonight as you uh, turn to Hallmark instead of the Super Bowl for your wives. It'd be a good practice. <laughs> but we got more than one TV in the house, most of us, so you can go in the other room, I guess. So the book of Hebrews, if you'll turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 13. I've been announced tonight, uh, communion will be at 6. Uh, normally in the winter we change from 7 to 6. We haven't done that this year for some reason. Uh, so we'll, uh, until summertime, our communion services will be at 6 o'clock. So just keep that in mind tonight. Johnny will be sharing. Where is Johnny? Oh, he moved. Don't do that. I won't be able to preach at you all, all morning. Uh, Johnny will be preaching tonight and sharing from the word and, of course, great time of testimony and fellowship uh, and, of course, as we take communion together. Uh, what time? Yeah. Oh, see, you, I told Ben they do listen to you, Ben. See? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13. I better get there myself. Let me just uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, are so thankful, uh, even recognizing now going coming to you in prayer, uh, how we have already prayed several times this morning, Lord, uh, how it is a good practice and habit for us to, to continually uh, come before you in fellowship uh, through prayer, reminding that we are dependent upon you and your grace. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us set aside all the distractions that's going on in our life and in our hearts and our minds and Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see your word. Help me and give me a mouth to speak your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> and amen. Well, if I were to ask you this morning what is the most important characteristic of a Christian or of a church, I wonder how you would answer that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to answer that at this particular moment. I'm going to just give some guesses what you would say, some ideas, what I think you might come, or what I think might come to your mind, uh, because it is an open-ended question. How do you answer that? What is an important characteristic of a local church? Well, some of us will surely answer uh, that they are an active church, one that is busy doing stuff. Good stuff, but busy doing stuff. Others would say the most important thing is being solid, scripturally, have a good foundation, orthodox. Others say the most important thing about a church is singing. Maybe it's cleanness. It's nice walking into a place that's clean, isn't it? Um, by the way, you should thank the people here that come and spend their weekends cleaning the church, and maybe you want to volunteer for that and help out with that. It would be a blessing, I'm sure, for Kenny to... Have people come to him after the service. I'd like to get on board with that, serving the body of Christ in that way. Well, there's many things that come to our mind. A Pew Research um, went out in August 2016, came back with the following uh, things that people found to be most important about looking for a church or about a local church. The first of which, about 80-some percent, said the most important factor about a church is the quality of the sermons. It's funny me saying that you get that I guess <laughs> the second thing is feeling welcomed by the leaders uh, feeling like the leaders are friendly or approachable 
The third uh, answer that was given was the style of service. You know, there's a lot of styles, maybe traditional, maybe contemporary, maybe somewhere in between, confused, whatever. Location. I think that is a big thing up here, don't you? Location. Education for kids or, or kids' programs, friends and family that go there that you go to church with. And then, of course, service opportunities. Well, all of these are good, and all of these are right. We're not saying those people are evil, you know, because they didn't come up with the answer that maybe I would say. But turn with me over to the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, just for a moment. Because a survey like that doesn't say it all. Or maybe what is foundational or what is important, what is underneath uh, that should be obvious. Now, Ephesians 2 begins a series of letters to the seven churches in Asia. I won't uh, go in much detail with all of these. We're just going to look at a few uh, verses here at the first part to a church in Ephesus. Now, if Ephesus had a website, uh, which they didn't, but if they did and you went to their about page, you would think that's the place to be. If you want a place that's serious about doctrine, serious about teaching, serious about holiness, serious about whatever else you could be serious about, then Ephesus is the place you want to go. Uh, their uh, zeal for God and his name, the patience, they're, they're a church that has tirelessly been serving in the many capacities that they serve. Now let me just read the first few verses of that. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, beginning of verse 1, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your labor of patience, endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested these who call themselves apostles and are not found, or they call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You even read down to verse number 6. He says, You have hated the works of the Nicolaitans, some teaching which some suggest may be um, licensed for immorality or something of that effect. Uh, there's different views on that. But nevertheless, they hated them. And that was good because Jesus hated it too. This was a church that was, by all outward observance, doing what they needed to be doing. They were serving, they were holding fast, they had discernment, and they were testing and, and making sure that what was being taught was orthodox, was right, was from the word of God, and, and they would not tolerate, nor could they tolerate, evil or falsehood. And yet it was a church known with all of those attributes that Jesus said, this is what I have against you, you have lost your first love. Isn't that remarkable? That the church can function in a way and, and carry on all these things which Jesus mentions of their good works and their good deeds. And yet at the end of the day, they're functioning in this way, loveless, loveless. Now, all of these things that's mentioned are good and ought to be sought out and ought to be seen in the body of Christ. But, but love as well. It's not an either or or an option that we can choose. I'll take orthodoxy and, and hatefulness and, and, or I'll take love and whatever you want to call it. No, it's a both and. 
So significant it was here in the letter to Ephesus that Jesus' condemnation to them, if you don't repent, turn back to your first love, I will remove your witness from the world, your candlestick. It's pretty sober, isn't it? Pretty serious, but it reminds us that a church that can begin well, start well, uh, can also end in a place where they are loveless. Now, he doesn't clarify who the first love is. We think that may be your love for Christ, but, but I think it's both. Their love for Christ and their love for others. Their love for Christ and love for others. Well, what you see here is really the very mark of the church which we find early on in the book of Acts as people were being added to the church continually and they were going from house to house, breaking bread and fellowshipping with one with another, meeting each other's needs. They were, they were living out this kind of love for one another. I remind you of Jesus' words in John chapter number 13, doesn't it? How shall men know you're my disciple? How would you answer that? Well, because you know the Bible. Because you've got a lot of verses memorized. Or because you, uh, you don't like a lot of stuff that you shouldn't not like. It's probably a bad sentence structure, wasn't it? Thank you. Very helpful. She did that in class as well. So (laughs) can we just bow and pray and (laughs) start over? (laughs) How did they know that you're my disciple? Because you have love one for another. You have love one for another. They will see the demonstration of your love, the extent of your love, the interaction and the work of your love towards one another, and they will know by that that you follow me. So it's not uncommon that we find when Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter number 5, that he begins that very uh, that list of the fruit of the Spirit with love, that, that chief attribute of what it means of the Spirit of God working in your heart. Uh, an outpouring, an outflow of the love of God. Uh, in us and through us. Again, we find that same thing mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. A young church who only had three weeks of ministry um, by the Apostle Paul. And yet when he writes to them, he encourages them saying that your love is known throughout all Macedonia. Your faith earlier in chapter number one of First Thessalonians. But in chapter number four, he says your love is being spread all throughout Macedonia. That love that, that we see in First Corinthians 13 mentioned in our opening reading. That love which helps render all of our giftedness and all of our possessions and all that we possess, it renders it useful as we live with one another, as we fellowship with one another. And that's what you read in 1 Corinthians, or Mark read in 1 Corinthians as we followed along with him. Without, 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 what do you have? At the end of that, in verse number 3, he says, I have no prophet. Your prophets mean nothing. And so here we're called in Hebrews chapter number 13. Turn back with me. I don't know where you're at at this point, but turn back with me. Hebrews chapter number 13, verses 1 through 6, he calls us to, or he, he 
gives us a command or an encouragement, a little word about love, about love. Now, it may seem a bit off as you look at uh, this letter when we, uh, when we note that he has been explaining for us the Levitical system and the sacrifices and all the stuff that's going on about Jesus and, uh, and high priest and all of that. It may seem like he's coming to the end of his sermon and, and doing what most preachers do. I, I've got so far, you've been 40 minutes in and you forgot what I said, so let me just add some application so you got some take home, right? So maybe he's ending like that. But I don't think that's what he's doing. There is a lot of exhortation in chapter number 13 as he comes to a conclusion, but it's all rooted in his pastoral desire seen in verse 15 and 16. Look at that with me. He says, through him, speaking of Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, he's already explained to us there is no other sacrifice for sin. We don't come to worship to offer up again a sacrifice for sin. We didn't bring animals to church with us this morning. Some of us brought our kids. Maybe that's it's debatable, but you get what I'm saying. So he's saying what we do when we come together is a thanksgiving offering. Not offering up animals for remission of sin or forgiveness, but we're giving up sacrifices of thanksgiving. Fruit of our lips, singing praises to God as we have done this morning already. But it's not just singing and saying, God, thank you, praise you for what you've done for us. But we're also offering sacrifices of our own lives as well. Acknowledging what God has given us and then out of what God has given us, offering up sacrifices that are pleasing to God as we meet the needs, as we exercise love for one another. And so in light of that, let us read verses 1 through 6 as he gives us an exhortation about love. Beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those that are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Well, he's really calling us to love in action. Uh, in many ways, we could take these six verses. We could dwell on them for a long time. Or, or, and I hope this morning my intent is to take them all together because it is a continual encouragement or exhortation how we ought to love as a church. Beginning in verse number one that, namely, we're to love in a continuing fashion. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. When Mary and I got married, the church we were married at, um, we attended, and probably about a year and a half, maybe two years, a little over that, we, we went to that church. The pastor, he had a few little 
he's, he's a loving guy. He had a few quirks about him like we all do. And he would say a verse reference, and then the congregation would just repeat that. On demand, he trained us well. And so he would often say Hebrews 13.1. And the congregation would say, no, they wouldn't say that. They would say the verse. So let's try that again. <laughs> Hebrews 13.1. So, see, we got a lot of work if we're going to do that. <laughs> At the end of my illustration, you'll say, let's just throw that to the side. Um, so we would. He, often he would begin and say, Hebrews 13.1, the church would say, Let brotherly love continue, all in unison. And um, so we, we did that often. Up about a year and a half after us going there, maybe give or take a little bit, he up and resigned. Uh, it was very sudden. No one knew about it. It was just all of a sudden announced and then left. And, and the church did what they were supposed to do. They went and looked for a new pastor. Well, we had the address and we had the verse, but the next pastor we brought in really fleshed out how much of that verse had us. He was one among many of the, of the next pastors that either was part of a church split, of that church splitting, or, or led during the splintering of that church over the next 10 years. It was far removed, the effects of those, those words was far removed from that congregation. It was sad and tragic to see. And especially when you're a small church, one that was thriving, it was a gifted church, had a lot of people, a lot of people serving yet, and they knew that verse. They could tell you where it's at. Now, some of us, we know verses in the Bible, but we got to get in there and Google it to figure out where it's at. I know it's somewhere in, in First Hesitations. <laughs> so i got to look it up. But they weren't like that. They knew it was Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. And yet they had saw in their own midst and felt the impact of the neglect of those words. It was a tragic thing showing under the surface they had the knowledge of the word, but they did not let it impact their daily life and their interaction with one another. It was a tragedy. My wife and I visited there once. I preached for them on a Thanksgiving service in, in a church that we were married at. I was called to preach at. I never felt like I was so invisible. And I was like, I'm preaching. So it just happens. If you've ever been to a church and you feel like they, didn't, they weren't nice to me, well, it happens. You see, he's telling us to let brotherly love continue, this, this family love, this, this love which is in the body of Christ. Now, there is a, a love with our relatives and loved ones. That is true. But here he's, he's speaking about the body of Christ. Those around you, look around for the, this morning. He's speaking about that kind of love. Let it continue. Reminding us that while the, the, the reception of the gospel, the receiving of it, the application of the gospel is a personal thing between you and Christ. But the living out of that reality is not personal at all. It is a, it is a corporate event. We, we live and we serve and we, we're saved together. We're on this journey together. And that's the joy of the gospel, that not only do we have a home in heaven, but we've got a lot of people that's, that's family that's going with us. And they may not be our, our kin as the sense of sharing our name or, or bloodline, but, but their family nonetheless, the relationship to them is, is deeper, richer, more lasting than many of our natural human relationships in our families. 
He's saying let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Let the love that we have together. Isn't it remarkable earlier in Hebrews chapter number 2 that he said Jesus was not ashamed to call us what? Brothers. And he's saying to these people in this church and to us as well, look about. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let that closeness, let that reality, let it continue. Let it go on. Calvin has rightly said he calls love brotherly. Not only to teach us that we ought to be mutually united together by a a peculiar and inward feeling of love. But also that we may remember that we cannot be Christian without being brethren. For he speaks of the love which the household of faith ought to cultivate one towards another. Insomuch as the Lord has bound them closer together by the common bond of adoption. Of adoption. You see, he's calling them to love one another, to let it continue, though. As we see in the church of Ephesus, it's not a common thing that it will, it will last. It isn't one of those things left to itself will just continue to cultivate, but it must be maintained as unity is maintained in the body of Christ. He says, let it continue on just as we grow in love. In his words to the Thessalonian church, I hope you practice this more and more. So we're to continue in our love and our encouragement and our care for one another. That's a calling all in itself, isn't it? Because of the challenges that we face with that. Because we push against each other we irritate each other we if we could really say that in our unspiritual sense we just make each other plain mad right miss jan's only one that said amen to that <laughs> the lady i went to church with a sweet lady and a very godly woman an older woman in our church and she come up to me after one of the services and she said i just need to be here and i said well we all do don't we she said yeah i'm just mean i'm like man if you're mean none of us got any hope (laughs) well what he's saying here to these people let it continue on let it continue on love one another care for one another maintain it guard it and that's what we need to be as a church not to be neglect all the other things that ought to be manifested and we ought to be marked by, but oh, that we would be, we would continue to be marked by our love for one another. How? By continuing in the love that Christ has for us. Amen. Secondly, not only do we see this in verse number two, he says, love is concrete. Love continues. Love is concrete. That's the only word I could think of. Verse number two, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, you know, the temptation is to take that last part and go on a rabbit trail for a day or two and, and figure out what does that mean? Well, he's referring to Abraham and Lot. And you never know who God puts in your path to show kindness and love and compassion to. What I mean that love is concrete, he's, he's saying exactly what First John says, that we're not to love in word only. It's not to be the talk that we have, love you and love your brother and love your sister and all of that other stuff, but that love ought to manifest itself in hospitality, in the way we care for strangers that come along our way. And the hospitality was a, a virtue in the ancient world. 
We see that all through the Old Testament as, as Lot and Abraham, the example set before us in the passage here, to bring them into their home and provide food for them and care for them and a night's sleep and all that would take care of sending them on their way, providing hospitality, loving those who care for us. And I remember a couple in California who came up to a, a young doctor and a ministry student that was there for the week, uh, weekend actually, or two weeks, whatever it was. I can't remember now. But anyway, I remember them. And they come up to him and they asked him in the Sunday school class, said, uh, young man, what are you here for? And he told them. And they said, you got anywhere to stay? And they, he said, I do this week. And they said, well, when you come back on your next module, give me a call. We'll, we'll give you a place to stay. You can stay with us. So he called him. He got a ride to their house. They gave him a car for the week. They gave him a place to stay for the week. They didn't charge anything. They took such good care of him. They had dinner waiting in the evening after his long day of classes, giving him time to study. And, and the wife, this retired couple, fixed his lunch. They took care of everything he needed. At what cost? Nothing. Who does that? That's what the first thing I thought of when I first heard it. And then later on, after he graduated from that, he gave me their number and connected me with them, and I realized this family does that. Amazing care and love for people that don't know. They didn't know me from anyone. But their willingness to open up their home and their lives and their care for me, it was just amazing experience in my own life. Little did I know that same year that I experienced that, I'd meet Ben, and then the next year I would... I would meet many more examples of that here in this church. Before there was ever a ministry center, how many of you had homes that served that purpose? Loving people that you didn't know, missionaries that come along, people who are suffering in need, continually caring for one another. And in, in the Bible days, in the context of this, Christians would have been traveling and traveling teachers and preachers and and those who are displaced from persecution and he's saying that the church would instead of putting them up in a in a place that was dangerous or immoral or filled with all kind of violence and vulgarity they brought them into their homes and they gave them showed them kindness and compassion they loved them and that's a very at the very heart of what we do at the ministry center isn't it we bring them in and take care of their needs provide for them Snowshoes so that they can walk outside in the winter and all the other stuff that they need. Continually over and over demonstrating the very principles that God has given us here. Uh, of the pastor, they're called to be lovers of hospitality. Of the widows that were taken into the church and, and, and under the church's care, they were to be people who have opened their homes to others and loved the strangers. Peter says we're to love hospitality and show it and display it without grumbling and complaining. He's saying that we take and we see the blessings God has given to us and we use those to bless others that God brings along our way. I'm so thankful for that example that I see here. By the way, if, you, if you've never been to the ministry center and you really don't know what goes on there, I would just encourage you just to grab one of the leaders here, Mark or Ben or one of the elders here, and just grab and say, you'd like to know, come on, and, and we'll take you over there and walk you through that and, and see what God is doing there. And what a what an encouragement. What is he saying then? Why did I bring all that up? Because he's saying that we should continue in that. 
is what God has called us to do. That's how he called us to love. Love the stranger, love in concrete ways and substantial ways, not just in word only. But thirdly, notice he says not only love is concrete, but love is compassionate. Remember those that are in prison as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated since you are also in one body. These are those people within their own church family, I think, those within their own ranks who have suffered prison or imprisonment. But it could extend to others as uh, as well that they know who are in prison. And maybe he's speaking here that and sometimes being in prison, it was the families, it was the people that knew them that took care of their food and their provisions. That That's how they ate. Some prisons in the world are like that even today. Paul lived on his own means and on his own dime when he was in Rome. And that was not free for Paul. He couldn't go out and work. He was... He was chained to a guard, but it was the body of Christ who come around and loved him and cared for him. And so maybe in this, he's speaking about provision. Maybe it's provision for them or provision for their family that's left behind that's not in jail as well. At least, I think he's, he's wanting us to have pity or compassion on them, recognizing that they are part of us. Isn't that sometimes what we do when someone's in trouble or, or someone's a bit off or, or, or there's danger involved with that? We can easily distance ourselves from them. He's saying, don't do that. They're part of the body. They're part of you. They're part of the congregation. They're part of the family. He says, don't distance yourself with them, but remember them. That means at least that we should pity them, but we also should pray for them. Pray for them. On Wednesday nights, we... We often take an area of the voice of the martyrs and we pray for that region, that church, the people. That's a great resource to tell us ways in which we can pray for them and things that the voice of the martyrs are doing for them. And so he says not only do we love continually and love in concrete ways, but we love with compassion. And can I say this? There is no love without compassion. It's just, it's just not there. You can say you love, you can, you can say all the right stuff, but if you have no compassion for others, then you don't have love. You don't have love. Fourthly, look with me in verse number four. Not only is love compassionate, but love is chaste. It's a word we don't use a lot, isn't it? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Love is not without boundaries. It's not just kind of all laying all over the ground and, and just pouring out of us. It is, it, it has boundaries. It is within the confines of God's own holy nature and character. Here, he's not speaking in the sense that Rome or the citizens of his day had a disdain for marriage. We may have more of a disdain for that in our culture than than they did in their culture. They, they did prize it. They did think highly of it. But what they had a disdain for, what they, they didn't grasp, what they didn't have a hold of, is the purity that went along with marriage. It wasn't that they didn't think much of marriage. They just didn't think much of keeping their own bodies from sexual immorality. It was common in their day just as it is in ours. Just as it is in ours. It was not a, 
taboo. It was not something that they looked down upon, not something they thought about. In fact, much of the pagan religions and practices in the temples involved temple prostitutes, both male and female. So what he's saying, the body of Christ is, in this sense, counterculture. Love is not love just without boundaries. Love is love with holiness, with chastity, with purity, and especially in the confines and the reality of what God has given us in the covenant of marriage. And he has given us a good gift of intimacy, of joy, of fellowship within the marriage that is unmatched in any other relationship on earth. But it is within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman that God has given this to us. We live in such a twisted society, not that it's new to be fascinated with sex and immorality, but it is twisted in the sense that that is the very talking point of our identity and our culture. We're in a world is is going on when when the greatest way to define ourselves is by our sexual preference or by some kind of gender fluidity. And we wonder why the world is so perverted, why America is so perverted. But we lost our minds. We lost our boundaries and our borders. We lost the idea and the beauty of what God has given us. And we've accepted something twisted and and malign, something which which feeds our own lust instead of gives it takes. And we've said that's normal. That's good. We've called we called what is good evil outdated. And we've called what is evil good. And in time, in personal expression. Troxel and a little work that he has, his name is T-R-O-X-E-L. So you if you want to look him up, Google him. He's got a great little work, Banner of Truth, uh, writer, author, preacher. He makes a statement uh, concerning this. He says, God created the enhancement or the enchantment of marital sexual union. The holy intimacy of marriage between one man and one woman is unique. Nevertheless, the gift can be grasped, taken, cheapened, and twisted beyond recognition. I think we live there. I think he's right on. True love gives, shares, waits. It values getting to know the other for whom that one is. False love takes, ravages, and impatiently grabs. It values the other for what that one can gratify. And that is not just the industry of of sexual immorality, but pornography and everything else that falls in that category. It is the love of your own self. It is the pursuit of your own desires at the cost of another's purity, another's right, another's body. It is that love which is so twisted that all it does is demand and never gives. And all of its false promises to the other other person involved in the transaction is is empty it's shallow if we're the church going to love as as we ought to love in this day it is not only the way we love strangers and not only the way we love uh, one another in a kind of family setting those who are suffering but it is the way we love our spouses as well it is the way we we love and 
promote purity among one another, both in the act of adultery and in the, in the sense of adultery through pornography and all the other things that we get engaged in and we're surrounded by. Love is pure. You remember? And that what Mark read to us this morning, he didn't make that up. It was in the, it was in the, it was in the Bible. It doesn't matter what translation you get, that's what you find. He's saying marriage is to be honorable in the bed undefiled among us. And I would say for those of you here that are seeking marriage, praying for it, or just dating because you're not really sure about marriage, whatever the case may be, find someone who will care enough about you that they'll not only care about you as a person, but they'll care about your spiritual walk as well. That they will not want to lead you willfully and knowingly into sin. That is not love. That is selfish. So he says that we are to love and love is chase. Love is chase. It is compassionate. It is concrete. It continues, but fifthly, and I'll say this in closing, love is content. Verse number five and six is an odd way, I think, of closing out the section. But he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. What a concluding thought there in verse number six. We speak about the love of money in this section. We speak about greed and covetousness and all the things that go with that. And Jesus was right in the Sermon on the Mount when he said you can't serve two masters. And is a fitting in to the conversation of love because it is the love of money which really undoes all of these other claims of love, all these other actions of love that he calls us to. If the only thing that you care about is what you possess and the only thing you care about is your money and, and your safety and your security, then you will never, never let love, brotherly love continue. You will never communicate and meet the needs of others. And if you do, there's always a price tag attached to it. You know the guy who took you out to McDonald's five or six times and constantly knows that you owe him about 75 bucks. It may be an act of hate if it's McDonald's that he's taking you to so frequently. But you get the point. There are people, there are people that have helped, forced to help. Maybe you've been helped by people like that. And they continue to remind you. They can call on remembrance. They may not know who the president of the United States, who, uh, who the first president was, but they can tell you how much money they paid to help you get out of trouble. I know people in my life, there's certain people, those are just people you don't owe money to because they keep a good record of it. Is that wrong? Well, it's wrong if that's their God. It's wrong if that's what we're anticipating. It's wrong if that's what we're putting our hope in. And why is it so wrong? Not only does it forfeit all of our other and lead us to a place of, of not fulfilling the law of love, but it also manipulates our own moral conduct, our own moral, our own moral code. Because what will you do for a gain? 
Because if your God is your bank account or your God is your possessions or your God is your own reputation or whatever it is, then, then nothing matters except appeasing that God. Nothing matters than getting more and more. Maybe he's saying it to a church who is facing their own property being taken from them and their money being taken and, and, and the means of which they will live by. And the fears which all of that grabs at our heart, the fear of loss, the fear of poverty, the fear of, of, of nakedness, the fear of being without. And yet in the midst of all that, he meets us with this great encouragement. You need not fear because Christ will never leave you. Because what you hold and many times what we serve, whether it's money or sex or whatever it else is, all of it is fleeting, corroding, corrupted. But Christ is much, much more valuable, much more glorious, much more satisfying. Verse number five, he says at the end of this section, not only be given, keep your life free from this love of money, which is so easily attached to all of us. Let's just be honest. It is, right? Some of you have worked with people, maybe some of you in your own life have found yourself in that own trap or worked with people in that in your professional industry, those of you who are retired, that all they've done is chase and never got enough. Verse number five, he says, our comfort, our confidence is this, that Christ will never leave us, forsake us, so we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. My confidence and my comfort is not in what I possess, but in who possesses me, my God my help in my time of need. So he calls us to love, to love in action, to love in a way that is concrete and compassionate, to love in a way that is pure and to love in a way that is content with Christ and what he offers us. Turn with me to First John's a fitting way to conclude our time this morning, I think. First John chapter number three. Let me just read, starting in verse number 16. Really, this whole section is good, but let me just start in verse number 16. He says, by this we know love. How do you know that? Well, he says, this is the way we know it. He laid down his life for us. and We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? Well, it... It can't, not truly, not fully. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassures our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him? What is his commandments and what pleases him? Doesn't he tell us in verse 23? Aren't you glad you don't have to go home and scratch your head and be like, I don't know. How do you answer that question? I'll give you the answer. 
And this is his commandments, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And this we know, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let us be known for our zeal for the truth. The word of God, it is authority. God has given us everything for life and godliness. The word of God is our authority. It is our guide. It is our lamp. It is our understanding not only of who God is, but of the world and how we're to live in it. Let's be known by our zeal for that, by our zeal for the gospel. For there is only one salvation, one name under heaven whereby we must can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that this morning, you don't know him, then I just let me encourage you to talk afterwards. Love to take the Bible and share what he has done for us. Let us be known for our zeal for worship as we come here and, and lift up and magnify the name of Christ. What a joy that is to be reminded of the deep truths of the word of God. Let's be known for our holiness as a church that we love what is good and hate what is evil and, and want to live in a way that is contrary to the culture because our eyes is not on the culture. Our eyes is on Christ in his kingdom, our home. Let us be known for our love for God and one another. I think that's his encouragement here. Hebrews 13.1 says what? Let brotherly love continue. And that's my encouragement for you. And is it amazing? It's encouragement filled with a reminder that the foundation of that love for one another is rooted in his love for us. When you were a stranger, did not he take you in? When you were outside the family of God, didn't he bring you in to make you sons? When you were desolate and depraved and when you were dead in your sins, did not he come and love you and meet you, clean you and restore you? When you were without in your greatest need at, at your greatest hour, did not you find sufficiency in the cross of Christ, that great declaration of his love for us? Well, all of those answers are yes and yes. Therefore, Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for this time that we have. Lord, I pray for this day that you would let the words of, of your book, the words of your spirit as it's working in our hearts and lives, let it continue to work in us, conform us to the image of your son. Lord, help us where we are weak and strengthen us. Help us where we have failed and have fallen and pick us up by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.